0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Welcome to Poured Over, guys. This is a house where we take our shoes off. Thank you very much. So we have Jeff Yang, Phil Yu, and Philip Wong. The authors of Rise, which is a must-have for everyone, but it's a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now, and I love the burst that you have on this jacket. Intimate, indispensable, and in progress. So I want each of you guys to say hello, just so listeners can hear your voices, and then we'll get into the conversation.
1: Uh, Hello, this is Jeff, the non-Phil
2: of our trio. (laughs) (laughs) This is Phil You, I'm just Phil, not Philip. Don't dare call me. For, no, I'm just kidding.
3: <laughs> Dang, Phil got the nice mic set up. This is Philip, <laughs> Philip Wang, Wong, whatever you want to go with that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> good, good to be
0: here. Okay, and I'm the only non-dude. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. But I want to start with a round robin and I want to know where are you guys from? Moo
1: loaded question. Loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Los Angeles, uh, Ladera Heights, historically Black neighborhood, and a fantastic, fantastic place where we've spent the last six years since our forced migration from New York City. <laughs> I'm from California.
0: Okay, but you're living in Los Angeles, right?
1: I am living in Los, Los Angeles, yes.
0: Okay. All right, Phil?
1: Also
2: Los Angeles, Southern California. Okay.
0: So three dudes in Los Angeles, but seriously, where are you really from?
2: Mm. Staten Island. <laughs> I hate to admit it. <laughs> I am from Sunnyvale slash Cupertino.
3: I'm another Bay Area native. I'm from NorCal East Bay, Walnut Creek, California. <laughs> Walnut hey, we, Creek. Used to, we
0: used to have a store there. I, I yes. to a lot of I, events at that store.
3: I might have gone to some. I studied my SATs at that store. Oh, yes, you did.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to buy the book. <laughs> You know, that's doubly Asian. I don't know.
0: (laughs) You are not the first. So I actually live in New York and L.A., but Boston is home. Obviously, I'm bringing this up for a reason, because the four of us get that question all the time. Yeah. Except someone's always looking for an answer that isn't Staten Island, Cupertino or Walnut (laughs) Creek. And we're Boston, Massachusetts, I can guarantee. So here's the thing, guys. What does Asian American even mean? Mm. Anymore. And who is Asian American?
1: You know, that's actually kind of the primal question we had to ask ourselves when we were starting off with this book. And not only because it's a question that I think for us, as Asian Americans, we have to contend with it, gets thrown in our face all the time. How could you possibly call yourselves Asian American when there are so many different kinds of Asians, different languages, different ethnicities, different national origins? And I think the first thing that we ended up talking about a little bit was first of all, the term Asian American is in flux, but it has never been a static term. It originated as kind of a term of political convenience. Very much so, in fact. It was forged in this era of civil rights when, in fact, the very first usage of the term Asian American was in support and solidarity with Black Americans. It was to march in protests during a protest supporting the Black Panthers by a group of students of Asian ancestry and origin who wanted to have a banner, essentially, to put themselves under. So that banner really ended up being the first marked use of the term Asian American in public. A literal banner. It was a a literal literal banner, not not a figurative one in that case. The main thing is that since then, we've had to fill in those blanks. And we actually have an article one of our early uh, essays, sorry, in the book is about what the definition of Asian American is and how it's shifted over the decades.
3: Yeah, that was one actually big challenge when we even just set out to do this book. I think it's easy to say, hey, let's just do a book about Asian American culture. And then when you actually have to get into the pages and and we're at the controls of what goes in the pages, it's actually very daunting and scary because everyone has different definitions. Like Jeff's saying, it's constantly in flux too. So how do we reconcile our own decisions of what goes into the book, right? So we have multiple pieces that are trying to like talk literally about us trying to define and why and what Asian American is. And I think that's something that I personally learned a lot about as a youngest one here about like the history. And 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 yeah, I, I didn't know the origins of this term. I just thought that this was just, you know, what, what we were. So I'm just glad and I hope that this book just kind of shines a light on the fact that we exist and that there is a community that is searching for the meaning. And it's going to take time and it's going to be ongoing.
2: I think another big thing is one of the purposes of the book actually is answering your original question, where are you from? Because the presumptive sort of idea behind that question is like, you're not from here, right? We're always (laughs) kind of contending with this idea that we're not from here. You know, the other question underlying that is like, why are you not white? Which is sort of the dominant kind of narrative of our history, of American history. And so our idea behind this was we're from here and we've been here. And we've been doing stuff here for the longest time, longer than you know, because no one bothered to teach us and you. So that was a large chunk of what we were trying to do. We might have bit off more than we could chew with that <laughs> one. Well, that's why
3: we have that little emblem in the, on the cover of, uh, you know, like it's in progress. right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think especially when it comes down to that sort of definitional stuff, right? Because one thing that we definitely recognize is that the very first thing, thing that we had to assert is that, yes, we have a right to talk about ourselves as Asian American, that literally a category which has been defined by not being white and not being black. And in fact, more often than not being put in a category called other, right? How much more othered can you be than simply to be dumped into a category called other? That actually erased both our uniqueness, but also our commonality, that the places in which Asian American identity and community and culture were coming out of, they weren't necessarily coming from the same place, speaking the same language, et cetera, but rather from the shared experiences we had in America. And that's something which I think a lot of people forget. There are no Asians really in Asia, right? In Asia, Chinese and Japanese and Korean ain't necessarily getting along all the time. And South Asia and South Asia even itself has its own set of demarcations and distinctions often doesn't feel included or participating in that larger pan-Asian conversation at all. And yet there is a meaning for the term Asian in the United States, in part because we are putting into that category. It's almost like calling us that, putting us in that space together, making us feel like we don't belong to those other spaces is a lot of what we, over the last 30 years, have used to, in some ways, start shaping the outlines of what it means to be Asian-American.
0: Phil, you and Jeff met, I'm not entirely sure when, but you've had a podcast together since 2017. They call us Bruce. So can we talk about how you guys met and then how you met Philip and how this book started? Because this is not a small project. I want
1: to say that we met on a podcast dating site. <laughs> <laughs> Swipe right. Oh, that guy. <laughs> it's funny because I first met Phil You in a lot of ways because it was the waning days of... A publication that I was the editor and publisher and co-founder of, A Magazine. And the dot-com era had arrived and upon it had crashed many ships, big and small, of which A Magazine was one. And the biggest loss to me, other than obviously the work that we were doing as publishers and all the staff and team and contributors that we had, almost all went on to like bigger and better and more beautiful things, was the fact that all of a sudden it felt like there was this vacuum in the Asian American community for a place where Asian Americans could talk to one another and connect with one another and see one another. And then comes along this blog called Angry Asian Man that somebody forwarded to me. I'm like, this is pretty awesome. Who is this guy? And we we had mutual friends. We crossed paths in other ways. But I think more than anything else, this feeling of comfort almost that these conversations were not only going to continue, but they were going to continue in more vibrant and more dynamic and more interesting fashion in the digital space. That's kind of what connected me to Phil to begin with. And it turned out that we had a lot in common, of course, and became friends and moved on to do a lot of stuff together. Can I just
3: interject real quick? I remember when I was in college, I think Angry Asian Man had only been around for maybe at that point, maybe one or two years, but he had reposted one of our videos. But I just remember, oh my God, Angry Asian Man reposted our video. This is so cool. I thought like we like made it. Those were our trades. That was it right there. So <laughs> that was my first interaction with Phil.
2: I mean, I think it's safe to say we were all kind of dwelling in the same spaces in terms of like people who are maybe more than average. This is our wheelhouse. We're interested in this. And On a level that we would create extra stuff to talk about it, right? So, you know, as Jeff and I, our friendship grew, like, naturally, it gave way to um, a podcast. The podcast itself was an extension of just conversations at bars of what is happening right now in Asian America. So naturally it would evolve into a conversation we just recorded. By the same token, like the book itself is also a natural extension of that stuff too. When I
3: first met Jeff and, and obviously like Phil, like we, we know that we like to talk about these things. So I just remember around 2019, you know, we're a year past Asian August and this great uh, magnifying glass onto Asian American media or movies, whatever, for the first time in what seemed like like a very long time. And all these articles were saying, oh, my God, it's the first in 25 years. And this is this is such a landmark, you know, film. And obviously, I know that Phil and Jeff, we've been in these spaces these last 25 years plus. And I remember just talking to them because I knew that they would relate to what I'm thinking to of. of There's been so many things that have happened in the last 25 years, but no one knows about it because, you know, it hasn't been documented that well or is it there are subcultures or it's very niche. So, oh, man, that, that really sucks that no one knows. You know, it's great that people are talking about it now, but man, if people only knew what we really did, right? And these would be things I would just lament to Jeff um, about. And then a few months later, he comes back to me and he's like, hey, I think we should make a book about it. And I made a deck already. And I was like, "What? where did this come from? And it really was just coming out of these conversations of just knowing that our community has done things for so long. And obviously with Jeff's background in publishing already, he was able to see this book. And I'm just glad that, you know, he reached out to me to, to want to be part of creating it.
0: And the thing is, too, I think there are a lot of folks still who think we're kind of sitting on the sidelines and we're a little quiet and maybe we don't necessarily yell or swear or not want to do math. I mean, a lot of those images are still out there in the world. And that's despite a lot of film and a lot of television, a lot of music, a lot has happened. A lot of great books have come out where we are not exactly what people thought we were. But before we get to all of the fun stuff and boba, yes, Pineapple slushy with Boba is my drink of choice. <laughs> Judge away. I am a pineapple <laughs> Fanta girl. Judge away.
1: <laughs> Philip is judging. No, <laughs> no, no, I <laughs> love that stuff too. <laughs> it's fun.
0: It's only when I'm in L.A., though, that I give in to the dark side, as I call it. But I want to talk about something serious before we get to the good stuff, though. And I'm especially curious, Philip and Phil, because you're a little younger than Jeff and I are. But when did you first hear the name Vincent Chin and what did it mean when you heard it?
2: You know, I would say learning about Vincent Chin and learning about that case, it changed my life. Honestly, I first heard about it when I watched a documentary called Who Killed Vincent Chin? Uh, Renee Tajima Pena and Christine Choi. I saw it in an Asian American Studies course slash film course in college. My immediate reaction from that was I was angry. I was very angry, obviously, because of the facts of the case itself. It's just a grave injustice and everything about it is so maddening and very just frustrating. But also at the recognition that like, I understand this, like I understand what happened to this guy as an Asian-American man growing up in this country, I immediately could have put myself in, in Vincent's shoes and be like, that could have been me. One of the big reasons why I was mad was like, why am I only learning about this now? Nearly 20 years later, i had never heard about this case. And it's not like it wasn't a big deal when it happened, but it didn't seem like anybody had taken the effort to make sure that young me knew about this in a way that like other sort of landmark things in history are ingrained into me. I'm like, well, how come I'm hearing about this now? And so, and then learning that Asian Americans stood up and got angry and they marched for justice, was like, oh my God, I am part of this community and this tradition of people who do this. Unlike the things that I, I'd seen of the way that maybe mainstream media would like to paint Asian Americans as a community, as, the, as what you said, sort of the ones who kind of just stay quiet and just keep our heads down. Like, no, 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 no. Guess what? There's this whole other side of us that does not get that shine. So I will say Learning about the case and watching that film was life-changing for me.
3: Yeah, for me, it was also very, very late. I was probably already in my 20s, like out of college. I'll admit that I grew up uh, very lucky in the sense that, um, you know, even in Walnut Creek, which is a predominantly white suburb, I still had a very strong Asian group of friends. Asian role models. It was like during the Asian pride era. So like, I literally had Asian pride. I went to school, UC San Diego, which was another heavily populated Asian university. And I started making videos with my Asian friends. So there was never a time in my like adolescent or adult life where I felt like Asian wasn't good enough or was lesser. If I got rejected by a girl, it was because I thought it was just me, not because I was Asian. So I don't know if that's worse or better. (laughs) So basically the idea that Asians had struggles of like politically and and culturally was actually like kind of outside of my vision just because I was surrounded by it so much. And it wasn't until I graduated college and came up to LA and started getting more involved in film festivals and communities and community events that I started to hear about everything that like literally like Asian American history. I didn't, I didn't go to Asian American history. Like we didn't have that course at UC San Diego. So similar to what Phil was saying, when I finally did get plugged into not just Vincent Chin, but just so many other issues that our community has endured. And I was also thinking like, why did I not know about this? The most maybe I had heard of was going to Sacramento on a field trip and you, you learn about the railroads and that's like it, right? So there was just a lot of re-education for myself in my mid to late 20s That shapes not just myself, but also Wong Fu and and our tension with the content as well.
0: Okay, Jeff, put your walker to the side for a second. I'll put mine over in the corner now that the children have spoken. (laughs) No, but seriously, because I was trying to remember when I first heard Vincent Chin's name, because I knew I was going to ask you guys this question. I know how old I was when it happened. I don't think he made the national news, but I have always known his name. Even from adolescence, I've always known his name, the way I knew Fred Korematsu's name.
1: Wow. You know, I I mean, then in some ways uh, you were fortunate because even though we grew up as maybe pretty much contemporaries. I also don't think that I encountered Vincent Chin until not just after college, but similarly, I was working for Asian Cinevision, a media arts center, presenter of the Asian American International Film Festival in New York. And that was where actually I first saw who killed Vincent Chin. That was where I first really immersed myself in both the case, its backdrop, but also its relevance to the present. And I think in some ways, a lot of times people do challenge the importance of media, the importance of representation, the importance of capturing, documenting, and distributing our stories, both the historical ones and the kind of creative and narrative ones. And honestly, I write about growing up in Staten Island in a largely white community and experiencing asian Americanness ness as something that was defined primarily by what I wasn't and why that meant that I was Bad, ugly, wrong, evil, (laughs) you know, often thrown pine cones or other kinds of petty violence. None of that really made any sense to me in context, other than as something pushing me to be more like everybody else, more aspirationally assimilative. Dressing like eating the same foods, embracing English as a language, pushing away from stereotypical things like math and science, because, oh my gosh, those things would make me look like an Asian nerd. So, all that kind of just coalesced in many ways in a sense of fear and, and maybe even outright rejection of the tracings of being Asian American until I got to college when I first met other people of Asian descent who were not necessarily of my ethnicity, who were not from where I grew up, but nevertheless shared very common. Context contexts, right? But then when I actually saw who killed Vincent Chin, when I first heard about the story, one of the things that really underscored for me was this. It doesn't matter how much we try to repaint ourselves, refashion ourselves and say, "Oh, we can be white if we try, right? Or we can be adjacent to whiteness at least." There will always be a moment when somebody will look at us from across a subway platform or from the wrong end of a baseball bat during a time of of crisis and anxiety and rage and fear. And we won't look very white. You know, we won't look very American. We will look instead like the enemy. As much as that's not the only reason why we did what we did with this book. I mean, you know, obviously it's called Rise. It's not called Defend, you know. There's absolutely a sense in which even as we celebrated 30 years, we were also beginning this whole journey at a time when the story of Vincent Chin... Felt incredibly relevant because uh, even though you know we first started talking about the book in December, there was already a lot of conversation in our communities amongst our extended relatives about this terrible thing happening in China. And then by January, by February, by March, especially, boom, that stuff was all around us. And even worse, the reaction to what was going on was fierce and hostile, and in many cases, directly in our faces. And it felt a lot like we were doing this in part to preserve history in case we had to completely rebuild it. Like all the advances we've done for 30 years might have to be refashioned, re-architected, and we needed a map or blueprint to do so. Fortunately, I think we've been more resilient than that, but that lingering feeling of anxiety still pervades.
0: You include a chapter on anti-Blackness, and I am gonna bring it up here instead of waiting, because. This is something we have to confront as a community. It cannot continue to be acceptable. It simply cannot. And part of that is the legacy of Los Angeles in 92, obviously. And there was a lot of damage done. But this is exactly the moment where we need to figure out how to work with other groups and not just, I mean, I'm thinking about this case at Harvard and I'm having a moment where I'm like, really, you can go to Haverford, you can go to Swarthmore, there are other schools you can go to. And I'm having a moment with us as a community and I understand that for a lot of folks, when your parents first get here and you want the best for your children and you want them to exceed beyond what you were able to do, Jeff Chang has been doing a lot of this work out of the East Bay for a long time. And I love that guy. But how do we keep these conversations moving forward?
2: I think a major part of it, it ties back into the origins of this book, is that so much of the debate and discussion is very ahistorical, right? We seem to think all of this just kind of started within the last 10, 15 years. you know, Is this suddenly a problem, right? Or sort of 10, between Asian Americans and the Black community or these discussions around access and affirmative action and things like that. Like, this is not like a sudden issue that has popped up. Like, this is built over time. We have to understand as Asian Americans also, we come from a history where we have been discriminated against as well, a struggle of not being welcome in this country. And the advances that have come over many years has been a struggle that has been collective and based on the struggles of the black community, right? And we've built on that progress as well for us to kind of suddenly have this very shallow notion that people are coming after us or like people are trying to take away things from us. It's like, it was never ours to begin with. You know, we had also had to fight alongside everyone else to make this happen. And it's still very tenuous, right? So I I think a big part of this book is to have a more whole picture of our history here. It is the last 30 years, right? 90s to now. But we do devote a big chunk of the before as well, because we want to plant those roots and say, this began a long time ago. Let's at least start this conversation where we acknowledge and have a more deep understanding of our history. It doesn't all end with this book either. Like, this is just a starting point.
1: I mentioned that the very roots of Asian American as a term, as an identity, really were in both emulation and solidarity with Afro-Americans. That was the term being used then with Black Americans. But even way, way before that, and this is actually a conversation I had with Jeff Chang, we were in on a panel, I think. And one of the things that came up was the very central way in which the bringing of, especially, I think, those first immigrant laborers back in like the turn of the 19th century, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, and and later, you know, Filipinos and other people of other nationalities was in direct reaction to slavery and to the end of slavery in particular, that Asians even back then were being used as a wedge, like a labor wedge in, in a lot of ways to disenfranchise Black Americans. And it's something where Even then, there was solidarity among freed slaves and immigrant labor in a lot of ways because there were very similar things that were occurring to both groups. You know, lynchings and massacres were occurring to Chinese railroad workers and miners and entire communities, including here in Los Angeles. There's actually a street, ironically, perhaps, named Calle de los Negros, right? It has been renamed since. But back in the uglier days of the 19th century, the most deadly massacre of Asian Americans ever in our history occurred here. And Chinese people living in that then small community along the street, Cayo de los Negros, were uh, strung up. They had their gold teeth harvested, in some cases had organs cut off and paraded as souvenirs. It was just a grotesque and horrific act of human atrocity. And if we as Asian Americans do not recognize that these things sit in our past, in many cases, also in our present, and that if and when there are tensions across our communities, you mentioned 1992, needful conversations that have to happen around all the things that feed into those tensions. There is still more common cause that we need and that we have, really, across so many different contexts. So we did want to actually begin with that in in our book and continue with it in a really fantastic roundtable talking about interrelations between the two groups. But I think that no amount of space we put in the book is going to be enough to really cover all the different ways that that conversation has to happen.
0: In progress. In yes. progress is a Incomplete really, in progress. <laughs> really good phrase, because I think all of us are planning on being here for quite some time. Philip, what were you going to add?
3: Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, especially in this time of social media, just everything gets magnified. It's easy to generalize off of one tweet or one video. And it's like a wildfire, right? And so like, in some ways, like, I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but like, I almost feel hopeless, man, we could have the best relations, and we could have be all kumbaya. But if one video goes, or one person does one wrong thing, it just sets it all ablaze again, right? And, and I think like that, just to what Jeff's saying, is, there's no amount of content in our book that can solve where, where we're at, right? But I just hope that what our book can do, or, or the things that we talk about can at least shine light on the fact that, hey, like, we have common struggles, you know, we should be working together and yeah, not generalizing because we ourselves as a community have, have been fighting against being generalized as well too. So it's tough. And I think like just also because so many of us are from new immigrant families that we are so far removed from the history. Like, you know, Jeff, you know, you're talking about these things in the 1800s. Like, there are very, very few Chinese Americans here that are, are connected to that. Most of them are post-1965. There's a ton that are in the 90s that literally came over here just for education, right? And, and capitalistic opportunity, right? So there's a lot of people that are here in America that are like, hey, that history, our connection to other communities here, I don't care. Like, I'm here for me, right? I'm the, this is the American dream. And so when you do that, you wash away any responsibility to try to build each other up. But we're more segmented than before, I think.
1: I mean, I acknowledge that back in the 1800s, I was still a young child. So uh, (laughs) even I don't have direct remembrance of those days.
3: No, even like I was, I was alive during the 92 riots, but like even just being up in the bay and my parents not exposing me to that and not knowing what's going on. Like I had no idea of what was going on in K-Town, actually. So that was another thing, just like Vincent Shin, that I learned later on. I'm like, oh my gosh, this this is crazy, right? So that's why making content to preserve these things so that the next generation or the future can see their connection to the past and what we're experiencing in the present is all connected.
0: And one of the things that's so important to me about what you've put into this book too, is again, movies, music, television, all of that pop culture. I love the fact that you cheat each decade with its own film syllabi. You know, this stuff is important because if you don't see us on the screen, yeah, I went to see Shang-Chi. Did I go to see the, yeah, I, I've seen him. You can have my money. But Parasite, the first time I saw it, I was just wowed. And the second time I was hit with a wave of grief. All of these experiences and Fast and the Furious, yeah, three is still my favorite. But, and the fact that I can say I have a favorite Fast and the Furious movie, when in fact I do. So. But, and I'm joking around a little bit with this stuff, but when we think about what we had before... Mm-hmm. Right. I hate Breakfast at Tiffany's with the Fire of a Thousand Suns. <laughs> I had still yet to see The Wife, which is my favorite Meg Wolitzer novel. I have not seen the film adaptation because Jonathan Price is in it. And yes, I'm still angry. <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And so we're having this moment where John Chu gets to make dance music. I can't do musical theater. <laughs> All respect to John Chu. I'm sure he's great. But we're not just Bobo. We're not just Ramen. We're not just Roy Choi. I mean, I love that man, but we need to be out in the world. And we're having a moment where we are. And you guys have found a way to put this between two covers in a supremely digital moment where our community really does live online in a lot of ways.
1: First of all, the book is going to exist digitally. But I will say that the physical experience of getting the paper and cardboard book is going to be, if we're talking about T-shirts as kind of the first expression of the NFT. Right. Uh, putting the T in the end of the piece. And then the physical book is just so different of an experience. And for our book in particular, where you can unfold just vast four-page spreads and dive down into what we call spaces, right? We, we did these illustrations of different parts of the Asian-American experience, the boba shop, the college culture festival, a night out of K-Town, typical Asian grocery. You know, these experiences where we've intersected in different ways with a very diverse set of reactions to them, but that definitely are part of our lived lives in ways that I think that people who aren't Asian might not necessarily know, right? you won't see that horizon. You won't see that full spectrum until and unless you actually fold it out on a table. And so definitely buy the paper book if you can. But to your point about bringing together all of these acts of artistic and entertainment and cultural creativity in many ways, really kind of putting the focus on it. This is a pop history after all, right? I mean, there there are people who would say, oh, you know, why aren't you focused on squarely on labor, on military history, on organizing and advocacy, on politics? I mean, all those things are are threads in the book as well, but certainly image, culture, representation are a very particularly substantial Mm -hmm. thread or substantial, (laughs) (laughs) more than thread, rope, (laughs) chain, uh, tapestry in the book. That's because in a lot of ways, the challenges that we faced in even being seen cut to the heart of a lot of the things that Asian Americans continue to face today, because we're not seen, and especially if we're not seen as human, that anything can be done to us. You look back at Vincent Chin, the very thing, the proximate thing that helped to lead to that violent hate crime that took his life was that people saw in him something that they'd only read in headlines, right? They knew that Japan, this sort of mysterious, shadowy, evil empire out there was eating America's lunch in auto manufacturing. They'd read stories about how Japan was invading America. That was what was played back time and again on news stories and even in culture, in in TV and in in stories that were being written. And that incited these two out-of-work auto workers to take out their aggression and hatred on a guy who wasn't even Japanese or, you know, even Japanese American, a Chinese American immigrant, a college graduate, white collar worker, all these things that would approximate adjacency to whiteness, perhaps. But no, instead, he had foreignness, he had japanese he had an enemy invader projected upon him. And so much of that really does relate to the power of, of media and popular culture. And even going farther back, you know, we have this section where we look at the family tree of propaganda and how a lot of the things that are shaping the way we're seen today have their roots in wartime propaganda and anti-labor propaganda and anti-immigrant propaganda. That's where it all begins. Philip,
0: I do want to ask you about this specifically because you have a film company and you have been in this space for a really long time. And you started with film festivals and handheld video camera. We don't even rely on that, (laughs) right? Like we're all shooting on our phones, but you have been in this space for a really long time.
3: Yes. So I think like the term representation and, you know, it's something that our community talks about so much. And sometimes it almost gets like, oh, we hear it so much. Like, what does it actually mean? Right. And I think. The reason why I think the syllabus is so great. The reason why there is this focus on pop culture movies is I I do think that the power of seeing Asians do things in fiction actually really do dictate what the possibilities are in reality. I feel like when America sees us one way because of yeah like propaganda and just the the general mainstream projection of us, you almost have to give them this fictional version through a movie, you know, through a a show to get them comfortable with, oh, an Asian can be this, you know? And then when they see it in real life, it will actually make them potentially view us differently. But we don't even have an opportunity to exist in real life that way yet. So we can only imagine first, right? So I think that that is the reason why characters in movies... And the way we're depicted in content is so important, Uh, whether it's normalizing us as just regular people and human or painting our culture red and saying, like, this is something that you need to know about. This is why it's so important that you learn about our culture. Right. So for me, like, you know, in in storytelling and filmmaking, like it really is just about making sure people can see a spectrum of what Asians are, that we're not just kind of put into just like, we're just this one category, but hey, we can be this, but we can also be this. And I think that a lot of times we're so against certain stereotypes that we push away, like even just like Kung Fu, you brought up Shang-Chi earlier. It's like, it's not that we're against us being proud of our martial arts background or, or it being part of our culture. It's just that we just don't want to be that as the only thing. So we need these other movies and films and books to show us as this other type so that we can have a balanced version of us when you see an Asian person in real life, oh, you're not going to immediately go to that because you know. For example, like if I see a, like a white guy, I'm not going to automatically think, oh, every white guy is like a Seth Rogen, right? Because I've seen Channing Tatum's, right? So that's what, that's what we're kind of missing. I think a lot of Asians are still in media portrayed one way, but we're just starting to expand that spectrum. And I think that's really exciting.
2: Isn't that the contention of history itself? Who gets to tell the story? And whose story gets told? Who makes the images, right? Yep. And this, I think, is just a stab at us being like, look, we're trying to take control and tell our stories ourselves, right? And that's that's so powerful. And when that doesn't happen, we get these Vincent Chins. You know, we get these moments where someone thought one thing and end up tragically, right? I'm trying to
1: kerf all of the white guys I know now on the spectrum of Seth Rogen to Channing Tatum. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no, no one on either side beyond us too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's something that I think Asian Americans have for a long time had to contend with just from the standpoint of even representing more than just ourselves, right? Like a lot of Asian Americans, I think certainly during the 90s, did not want to be called Asian American. Not professionally, not publicly. They were people who did whatever. They were writers, they were directors, they were actors who happened to be Asian American, but they weren't Asian American actors, writers, directors, authors. And a big reason for that is because, unlike other races in many cases, or certainly unlike, I think, the white majority of people in all these categories, when you're called an Asian American blank, or certainly back then when you were called an Asian American blank, it really A reinforced a certain set of types around you. You could only do certain things. You're only suitable for certain roles. You're only capable of doing certain kinds of writing and coverage and creativity. But the other thing is that you then felt this burden of representing the race, right? Dishonor upon your ancestors, but for the entire community. And that's something I think we have talked about continuously. I mean, Phil actually was part of the coinage crew that came up with the term that I think best fits exactly that.
2: Uh, We're talking about the Rep Sweats.
1: (laughs) It ties back to you, Jeff,
2: because it was coined on the eve of the premiere Fresh Off the Boat. Yes. And it was that feeling of, you know, when you see something and it stars or primarily features Asian Americans, Asians, you're like excited, but also like, oh, God, please be good. Please come on, man. Like, please be good because this could We've been burned before. This could be bad. And you know, so it's that like tension of like, more often than not, you've seen when it's been bad. And the results are usually kind of like, well, that's it. That was our shot. <laughs> <laughs> Another 25 years.
3: We only get so many at bats, right? <laughs> so please don't strike. At least get us on base. Get, you know, get, get something. Hit by pitch. Or, just, like, just,
2: my or like just, <laughs> you don't have to hit it out of the park, but don't embarrass us, man. You know?
3: <laughs> but, but I think that's where... Uh, There's a sign of progress, I think, in just these last five years, and and credit to I think Crazy Rich Asians. Like honestly, like you know, we're we're saying that there was this inciting incident of like, oh my gosh, Crazy Rich Asians. There's been so many other things before that, but Crazy Rich really finally gave Mm -hmm. the mainstream, you know, ten thousand, you know, foot level people that are just looking at us from like really far away, an idea of like, hey, this is what our community is capable of producing, and also um, a a story that that um, is palatable to the masses. And because we got that foot in the door, it really has changed the way hollywood has seen us. maybe yeah sure money talks and and that's what finally came through but now we can have a minari with bling empire that is the spectrum that i'm talking about right like that's rogan to
1: channing tatum
0: (laughs) i'm good with it jeff more of this
3: (laughs) when there's a trashy television show that's predominantly white white americans are not not worried like oh my gosh this is how they're gonna see us because there's so many other there's so much other choice and i think that's one thing that we're finally getting is that it's, it's kind of funny. It goes against what Asians were taught since we were kids, but mediocre is okay. Like we can we can <laughs> fail upwards, you know, like it's it's crazy to think that we can have trashy TV and, and not take our entire community down. Hey, actually, even as Asians, we can enjoy trashy TV of our own community too. That choice is actually what I think shows the greatest progress in these last handful of years.
2: I think that the next step... Beyond that, and it's something that I'm warming up to, actually, is the idea that, like, there's the fear that, like, oh, God, they're going to all see us this way. And now I'm warming up to, like, I don't care how other people view us anymore. There's yeah. just this thing we did that involves Asian-Americans. I'm like, who cares if they think of us this way or that way or whatever, you know?
3: And the, the reason why we're even able to feel that is because we know that one thing isn't going to make a out. Mm-hmm. that, Hey, that thing sucked. Yeah. I, I don't like it either, but don't worry. We have five other things <laughs> that are on the way and, and we'll pick it back up there. Like it used to really be like, Oh my God, William Hung, you took us 10 steps back. Now it's not 10 steps. Now it's just maybe in place. Maybe it might even be half a step forward. You know, it's like because we have so many more things that are coming to fruition these days. There's so many more people that feel empowered. A new generation is coming up without this chip on their shoulder and without a generation of parents or generational guilt or trauma that's making them feel like they have to go a certain path. We have a little bit more freedom now. And I think that's what a big motivation of this book was trying to show is that, hey, like we didn't get here out of nothing. It really was a steady 30 years. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't just crazy pitch. It was a very long process, right? But I think that was another mindset that I had coming into this book, which was, hey, there are tons of Asian American history books that are doom and gloom. Let's talk about the stuff that has built us up to this point where where we're at, where it is so much to celebrate. And for the first time we're seeing a little bit more opportunity uh, you know on the horizon I think that's what is makes me feel so overjoyed about what this book is putting out into the world
0: guys I knew this was going to happen but we could do an entire season of shows <laughs> based on this book and never hit every single piece of it That's how much is here. You've got fashion, you've got music, you've got movies. Yes, the history is there because why should we have to separate ourselves from our history? We shouldn't, right? We're here. It's seeing your grandma, it's seeing the food you eat, it's seeing the things you like to drink and the people you hang out with and all of the different variations. But there is a show called, they call us Bruce that covers a lot of this stuff, (laughs) which is also available wherever you listen to podcasts and you should totally be listening if you're not. But I wanna ask each of you, before we go. What's your favorite moment from the book?
2: Ooh, that's hard. I mean, mirroring this very podcast, what you said, the thing about this book is that we cover so many topics and it's just kind of, a lot of it is just a drive-by for time and space. We're like, we couldn't get it all. And so every single section, whether it's two or three, four pages max, they're all worthy of their own book length exploration. One of my favorite pieces I'll highlight is uh, the thing we call the Asian American Atlas. Beautiful spread of the United illustration of the United States. And it pinpoints... Spaces like actual places you can visit in the United States. And I wrote it with the idea that you could go on the map and actually go there, but they're they highlight historical moments in the United States in our history, everything from like the first. Filipinos to arrive on the continent to the first Kuman Learning Center in New York. (laughs) But that, the original idea for that actually started from an idea for a separate book that I had. And, you know, we kind of condensed it down for this book, but everything here is worthy of another entirely other exploration book length, you know?
3: My favorite part is not just one specific piece, but it's the fact that it's not just us three, it's that we were able to bring in so many contributors from diverse backgrounds. And we really tried to be as mindful of the fact that, yes, we are three heterosexual, cis, East Asian guys. But like right when we started, literally like first conversation after we were like sat down and said, hey, we need to start. We acknowledge that we need to have this be a much more diverse group of contributors and keep an eye out for as we're choosing which topics and who we're reaching out to, to make sure that it's as even as possible. Yeah, like we, we just really tried our best to bring in as many, and not just writers, but also the illustrators as well. It's a global, very inclusive roster of talent. And I got to give it up to, to them. We kind of harnessed it and we like kind of led the way, but there's a lot of great content here from amazing people in the community.
1: The first thing which I personally enjoyed creating and creating in part because it was a crowdsourced team effort. Uh, was this spread we did on stuff Asians like. This was just a weird conversation that happened on Twitter where I just was musing on what are the most Asian, non-Asian things you can think of, right? What are the things that Asians have adopted for our own? And it ended up going viral, like hundreds and hundreds of responses. And so we got one of our friends, Shingen uh, Kaur, an incredible illustrator to do an actual spread of all these things that Asians like. You know, from... <laughs> It's like literal things. It's just, a, it's just <laughs> an illustration of things, Yeah. <laughs> like
0: it's an re- awesome <laughs> illustration. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's
1: like Costco, Toblerone, golf clubs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, that's just like a fun, really kind of insidery, but also recognizable thing. And what I've realized, too, is that a lot of those things are things, of course, that other groups and ethnicities also love. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say I, I really love is the... I think canonical in some ways, look back at Fresh Off the Boat that Phil and I did. And I, I say this because that also was something we talked about doing a book around. We mentioned it in passing, but, you know, I, I was sort of there on the sidelines watching as all this happened because my son Hudson Yang was one of the stars of the show as, as Eddie. And it really was a pivotal moment that I think we don't always look back to, even as we realize Crazy rotations would never have happened without Fresh Off the Boat. The third thing I want to say is something that Phil really led. And that to this day still blows my mind, this in the 10th anniversary of this remarkable phenomenon, right? And that's Jeremy Lin's first person account of what it was like to be at the center of Lin's sanity. And Philip did just a fantastic job, not just of curating the conversation with Jeremy, that allowed us to get words that we then brought to life via the incredibly talented Molly Murakami. In pictures. And that graphic essay, I think it's in some ways a perspective on insanity that no one has ever seen before, even in the insanity documentary, because it's, it's one where he's looking back. And it's one where he's being very honest and candid about things, which I think he probably didn't feel comfortable talking about before. But it still means a lot to us. And I, I think that even today, that moment especially now as we're watching the Olympics happen, right? It feels like one of the few moments in our recent history where people around the world, Asians and Asian-Americans, people of many different backgrounds could all come together and just celebrate what this one Asian-American guy happened to be doing, which at the end of the day was is kind of cool, you know?
2: I
3: realized as you were talking about Fresh off the boat, I just wanted to say, like, I I feel very lucky. This is my first book ever, and to say that my first time writing a book, I get to be, be on this level with such talented people. So the fact that Jeff kind of brought me into to talk about the 2010 specifically, I felt very seen. And what I mean by that is, even as someone who has been contributing to the culture, a lot of times I'm not even that young anymore compared to you know what we're seeing on TikTok. But there was a, definitely a period of time where I felt like all the stuff that we were doing on YouTube um, and this generation I grew up with social media now was going to be forgotten or was going to be left behind because people only care about the Oscars and mainstream movies and TV shows. And I'm like, man, we did so much for the for the culture on YouTube, on social media. And the fact that I was given the opportunity to talk about that and to cement that, you know, in this book. Uh, and capture it for the future it really meant a lot. So I feel even just as a part of the book, I feel like, oh my gosh, like I, I can't believe I got to do that.
0: There's a lot to be said for holding a physical book in your hands. There are times where I'm on a plane and I just need to read digitally and that's fine. But yeah, there's legacy happening. And yes, it's all still in progress, but this is legacy stuff. So Jeff Yang, Phil Yu, Philip Wong, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I really wish we could keep going, but unfortunately I have to let you go back to your lives. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. Thank
3: you so much. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you.
4: Hello, book lovers. Now it's time for your TBR top off where our booksellers recommend three titles for you to consider when you come in to pick up the highly anticipated title, Rise, A Pop History of Asian America from the 90s to Now. My name is Margie, and I'm speaking to you from my amazing home store in Northville, Michigan.
5: And hello, everybody. This is Gabrielle from the Rochester Hills, Michigan store. Hey
6: there. It's Kel from Lafayette, Indiana store, the home of the biggest gay
4: table. All right. (laughs) Well, there you go. Now we know. So we are very excited Uh to recommend some titles to y'all to take home with you and put on that to be read pile. Um,
5: Well, Gabrielle, let's hear what you got. Okay. So I chose Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Um, I know it's not in paperback yet, but This thing is so, so, so fantastic. Um, It's from the indie rock musician known as Japanese Breakfast. Mm. And it is an unflinching, powerful story of family, food, grief, and love. Um, When the author was in her mid-20s working as a waitress and struggling to launch her music career, she got a phone call that her mom was ill, and so she put her life on hold and moved back home to be with her mother through the final excruciating months of her battle with cancer. Um, And so you kind of, you get to read about this candid um, coming of age story of Korean identity and forging her own path um, and trying to, just trying to figure out her life um, after a devastating loss. So it was, it's one that will make you laugh, it'll make you cry and just, it was just so good. Just a great <laughs> memorial around. I so yeah, have, that's Crying in H Mark.
4: I have not heard anything different about that book than what you just said, that it's just marvelous, fabulous. You got to read it. The book that I picked today is called Minor Feelings, An Asian-American Reckoning, which is a collection of essays by the poet Kathy Park Hong, who is also Korean, actually. Um, the minor feelings in question here are shame, suspicion, and melancholy. They are feelings that Hong describes as widespread amongst the Asian American community while pointing out the problematic habit of lumping such a large swath of people from so many different countries together in one mass. These minor feelings are the product of the dissonance Asian Americans feel when how you're seen, how you're spoken about, actually contradicts your reality and you fall into believing the lies you're told about your own racial identity. These essays are part memoir, part cultural criticism, and all tired of being quiet about the experiences of what America has deemed the model minority while continuing while continuing to dominate, condescend to, and discriminate people against people of Asian descent. Subjects range from the Chinese laborers who were brought in to do the dirtiest and most dangerous jobs while building the nation's railroads to Hong's trouble finding a Korean therapist. This is a short, impactful, and honestly fed up group of essays that will make you think, laugh, and occasionally wince. And that is Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. And Cal, what do you have today?
6: Um, I picked a fiction book Called The Chosen and the Beautiful. Well, really, all of Nivo's uh, repertoire of novels that include The Empress of Salt and Fortune, When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain. There's a third one in that series of novellas and stories. If you haven't read those, I definitely recommend that. But The Chosen and the Beautiful takes a, you know, that all American classic, The Great Gatsby. But not only does it include magic into it, it also makes it super
4: gay. So that alone makes it better. <laughs> That's awesome. True. I have heard <laughs> the best things about her, and I am very excited to read The Chosen and the Beautiful. I'm glad that you brought that one up. Yes. All right. Awesome.
6: We're all excited for The Chosen and the Beautiful in paperback. She's also got The Siren Queen coming out soon. I have an arc of that too. Ooh. I got connections. Ah. Awesome. <laughs> That's the best. Gonna say, where you all of these free books, Cal? Right. It's <laughs> all the tours. The tours. Okay, I love enough. them and, and they love me.
4: Love it. Spectacular. Love it. Well, thank you, Gabrielle and Cal. Uh that will do it for today's TBR top off. Thank you so much for listening to Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Make sure to like and follow the show or even leave a review and stop into your local Barnes & Noble because we want to sell you all the books. You can follow my store. At- all the books. <laughs> all the books, right. You can follow my store <laughs> on Instagram at BN Northville and me at Margie Bookbrain And you can follow my store at Barnes & Noble Rochester Hills.
6: You can follow my store and I'm the one that does it on Twitter and Instagram at BN Lafayette IN. Okay, excellent. Thanks, everyone.
4: Happy reading. Guys, have a good day.
1: Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.